five, four, three, two, one. Lift off of the Falcon 9. Hi, I'm Mark Boucher. In this week's Space Economy podcast, my special guest is Jarrett Matthews, founder and CEO of Astrolab. Jarrett and I discussed his new venture, which is singularly focused on building a multi-purpose rover with lunar, terrestrial, and eventually Mars applications. Jarrett's new startup builds upon 20 years of his and his colleagues' work experience the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, SpaceX, and other companies. Listen in. Welcome, Jarrett, to the Space Economy Podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. All right. I'll start by revealing that I first met Jarrett 20 years ago at the HMP Race Research Station on Devon Island in the high Canadian Arctic. That station sits on the rim of the largest known polar desert crater, crater uh, called Houghton Crater. The crater makes for a great moon and Mars analog environment for testing equipment. If I remember correctly, you were a researcher at Purdue University at the time, and you were teleoperating an ATV at least one field season. We'll talk about your, uh, your high Arctic experiences in just a bit, but first let's learn more about uh, your current venture. So you're the founder and CEO of Venturi Astrolab, headquarters in Hawthorne, California, and you founded the company in 2019. Uh, your primary product is the Flex Rover, which we'll get into in a second. But first, let's talk about the business. Why did you create the company and what are your goals? All right, yeah, uh, yeah, that's co all correct. Uh, I founded Astrolab in la very late 2019. I really consider January 2020 as our official start when the first uh, team member joined me. Um, but yeah, Astrolab, uh, with the inspiration for starting Astrolab was really looking at the, the landscape of all the landers uh, under development. And so, you know, you not only have the uh, CLIPS program, the Commercial Lunar Payload Services program, where NASA has funded you know, half a dozen companies now um, to send stuff to the moon. You also, of course, have the human landing system program uh, with, uh, you know, one selected provider and, and perhaps soon to be a second. Um, and uh, all those landers are essentially going to come online in the next, you know, uh, one to five years. And uh, that, that to me represents a, a tremendous opportunity to really change how you think about uh, uh, operating on the lunar surface, and that's that's what we're doing here at Astrolab. All right. Uh, how many people work at the company now? And that, so now we're talking not even a year and a half into yeah, it. So, uh, so we're we we're now at fifteen and uh, trying to to grow at about uh, a person a month. So hope to hope to be uh, double the size uh, next year, and um, full of tremendous people with uh, with. Um, amazing experience in the field. Uh, the, the first person who joined me, who I mentioned earlier, uh, was uh, the chief engineer on all the robotic arms that have been to Mars. Uh, a lot of folks uh, on the team have spent many years at SpaceX and NASA and, and other uh, great institutions. And are you hiring now? Yeah, we're, we're hiring now, looking to, to double, uh, you know, ideally by the end of this year, if not over the next 12 months. All right, and the website for those who are interested in applying for a job, it's astrolab.space. There you go, I, I, there's your plug. <laughs> <laughs> so um, how did you fund the, the, the company to get, to get you off the ground? Yes, uh, so we have uh, 
venture backing um, to get us to this point. And that's allowed us to uh, put this incredible team together uh, to build out an amazing facility here in Hawthorne. Um, um, if you're not familiar with the area, there's a kind of a, a budding uh, startup <laughs> space hub here. Um, we have not only uh, SpaceX uh, across the street, there's Launcher uh, and, and other uh, space startups in the neighborhood. But uh, we built out this great headquarters uh, with all the things we need to design, build, and test rovers, including a mission control center, clean rooms, environmental test lab, high bays, uh, and even a, a lunar sandbox in the back. Um, and then also, yeah, we've uh, produced um, over the last about 18 months or so uh, the prototype Flex, which is a full-scale, fully functional LTV, or lunar terrain vehicle class rover. Yeah, I'm quite familiar with, well, quite familiar. I haven't been there very often, but I have been to, to Hawthorne, um, and I was there at the original um, SpaceX headquarters, uh, got a nice tour, oh, I don't know, when was that, 2004, I think, uh, from Elon himself. So, um, oh, as a matter of fact, uh, he, he, a lot of people won't know this, but the um, principal investigator, the leader of the Houghton Mars Research Station is Pascal Lee. I used to work with Pascal Lee at the Mars Institute, and uh, obviously uh, Elon has a great interest in Mars, which is why he gave us the tour of, of SpaceX in, in 2004. So um, can you tell us uh, anything about the, the venture backing that you have? Uh, no, yeah, we'd, we're not disclosing uh, how much we've raised, but we're, we are interested in raising more so i'm always uh, welcome to hear from uh, other investors uh, who who uh, resonate with what our vision uh, that, right. that we're trying to execute on is now explain to me because you're part of the or your partners with the venturi group how, how does that work yeah so we're we're strategic partners we don't have any uh official corporate uh, relationship we don't have any shared directors or anything like that um and uh basically venturi is uh you know uh, long long time uh, pioneer in electric vehicles uh, they have currently the world speed record for the electric car the world speed record uh, for electric motorcycles they have uh, involvement in the formula e um, racing series since its inception um, and they've also produced uh, really unique vehicles for the, the antarctic as well um, so they have a deep uh, history and in, in innovation and um, in particular we're working with them on um, cold temperature batteries as as well as tires for our rover among and other things do they do they have a, a stake in in astrolab or or not they don't know they just, don't. Uh, okay. the, the arrangement is is we're co-developing a lot of these uh, technologies for our rover and uh, we've agreed to purchase them um, you know uh, for flight okay all right. So now, in speaking about the rover, um, your first product is the Flexible Logistics and Exploration Rover, Flex. Um, the images and video of it look really cool, uh, including your recent demo, which we'll get to in a second, uh, in the field. Uh, and it looks something out of a sci-fi model, but it also reminded me somewhat of the Apollo Lunar Rover vehicle. So. Is this a rover, uh, a culmination of 20 plus years of your work in, in this area? Oh, absolutely, yeah. I, so I, um, yeah, when we met 20 years ago, I, as you mentioned, I was testing uh, my first rover in the, in the high Arctic uh, that I built as a, as a student. Uh, and I went 
from there to, uh, to JPL for about a decade, uh, working in the robotic vehicles group, um, where I worked on uh, both flight rovers, the Mars exploration rovers, um, Mars Science Laboratory, but also um, a lot of really uh, unique um, development projects, including the Athlete Lunar Rover, which was a cargo handling robot um, for the Constellation program. Uh, and it was it was baselined as, the, as part of that architecture to move you know large elements around, including habitation modules. Um, but uh, what I learned from that experience is that uh, you know you definitely need something like on, that on the surface to to move you know infrastructure and goods around. Um, but Flex really represents uh, lessons learned from that program and uh, is is a simplification uh, of of those robots, uh, but. Uh, maintains a lot of the capability that those robots had. Now, did you work on, and I'm trying to remember the name of the rover now. Um, uh, it was, uh, it's actually more of a, a human rated rover uh, at JPL that they tested. What was it called? You know what I'm talking about. There, there was a human uh, class rover at JSC called uh, the Lunar Electric Rover, the Chariot. Is, are you referring to that? By chance? Yeah, I'm trying to remember the astronaut that was in charge of uh, Mike uh, Gernhardt. Yes, Mike Gernhardt. That's yeah. right. Did you did you work with them at all? Or uh, we we in those constellation years we would do uh, so joint field tests where so that that rover was based out of Johnson Space Center. Right. Okay. Athlete rovers were based out of JPL, um, and so we would meet up in analog sites uh, every year with those guys and and do joint uh, field activities. Yeah. Yeah, that was uh, that was quite something. It was quite impressive. It'd be it'd be great to see this kind of stuff on the moon and Mars. Um, you recently put out your your first press release, I believe it was, where you basically uh, sort of like a coming out and said, uh, currently there is a gap in the last mile, and Astrolab exists to fill it. Explain what you mean. Yeah, so uh, going back to you know the the. Um environment that we're in now where there's all these new landers under development that are, are going to come online with tremendous capability you know of course starship is the is the most notable one that can theoretically put down 100 tons on the, the lunar surface um, that to me you know represents an opportunity to shift our thinking away from you know the traditional approach of being hyper mass efficient and really start thinking about economies of scale and so, so what we're what we're doing here is really drawing inspiration from how you move goods on Earth. If you think about the the global supply chain, right, the lifeblood of of global trade is the humble shipping container, um, and uh, you know it's what makes it uh, so um, invaluable to to life on Earth now is is the fact that it's this you know intermodal standard that everyone. You know, uses and it allows goods to seamlessly move from boats to uh, a crane to a truck or a train without ever having to be unpacked. And so, we're, what we're really doing with Flex is is carrying that idea forward that works very well here on Earth, at least in normal times. Uh, it works very well here on Earth, to, you know, to the lunar surface because these landers afford that that ability to do that to again de-emphasize you know mass efficiency and really start thinking about economies of scale. All right, so you mentioned Starship. For the sake of argument, we'll say, let's, let's just say that Blue Origin gets a contract to, 
to do something on the moon as well. Um, with both of those architectures that we're aware of right now, would Flex be, uh, uh, you know, perfect to match with those? Absolutely, yeah. So we, we're we're designing Flex to be, you know, lander agnostic. We we really want to encourage this ecosystem of many landers uh, and and rovers to all work together. And we think that's uh, you know what's the the critical missing element here is the standard, right? Uh, it's the the equivalent of the shipping container standard. And so we're we're putting our our version of that out there. We we released a payload interface guide with um, you know exactly how you could attach modular payloads to our rover, um, and what that allows us to do is you know not um, it, it it allows us to be the most versatile rover uh, you know ever conceived of. So we can do construction, logistics, human transportation, science, etc. Um, because we have this ability to pick up and put down payloads and. So yes, uh, to come back to your question, um, you know the rover itself could be landed on a number of Eclipse landers. Uh, the, the the rover and additional payloads could also be landed on uh, the HLS class class landers. All right. So um, we're going to talk about standards a little bit more in a second, but give me an idea of the size of the rover so that people have a, a, an understanding here and what sure. kind of payload it can actually carry. Yeah, so it's it's got a, a pretty unique uh, topology, but it's about the size of a, a Jeep um, in terms of the wheelbase. Uh, it it has a, what we call um, the primary way of carrying payload uh, is kind of underslung under its belly. So it has kind of a high arching chassis, which is uh, unique. Um, I, I've, I've seen very few vehicles like that, um, but it that, that chassis uh, can pick up and put down payloads that are three cubic meters uh, in volume and 1,500 kilograms in mass. And so that's about uh, double both in terms of, uh, of uh, mass and, and volume that a Ford F-150 um, pickup bed could, can hold. All right. And uh, I don't know off the top of my head the measurements of Starship, but could you scale Flex up so that it could be a uh, uh, a much larger rover to be able to carry a much larger payload? Yeah, so uh, at, at its current size, it's um, it fits uh, perfectly through the door of Starship. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, you could um, do several things. You could certainly scale it up um, and or you can um, actually have several um, flex rovers work collaboratively to lift larger payloads. So. I don't know if you've seen our, uh, we have uh, on our website, uh, a nice animation of our lunar conops, but uh, one of the scenes in there is actually using two flex rovers to kind of pick up a, a habitat between them and, and manipulate and ultimately dock it to an outpost. No, that, I didn't watch that particular video. I should have. Um, all right, so um, in terms of standards, um, you're proposing, uh, I'm taking a look here at the payloads interface guide here. Um, how many other companies are, are we talking about that are proposing this kind of capability? And where are we on the um, path for actually coming up with some sort of standards? I mean, are we like literally, you know, hi, how are you? <laughs> Let's talk standards. 
Uh, it's a little little bit more advanced than that. So uh, a couple of positive things have, have happened in the last couple of years. Um, so there, there, NASA has funded the uh, Lunar Surface Innovation Consortium, um, which uh, is, is run or managed by uh, the Applied Physics Lab, John Hopkins University. Um, and that has provided a framework for all you know all the the stakeholders to to get together and have regular dialogue on on numerous topics but standards is, is one of them uh, and um, also you have um, the um, the open lunar foundation uh, which is a um, you know um, nonprofit organization with uh, similar goals to you know to arrive at, at uh, cooperative means of exploring uh, the moon and settlement of the moon. Um, and uh, then also the, uh, the LEAG, the Lunar Exploration Analysis Group has uh, uh, as well um, a group that uh, discusses standards. So there's a, right now there's several organizations kind of working on them, but they all have shared membership. So I think all the right people are talking to each other, and uh, and and it'll um, you know quickly advance. We personally, you know, be, we're a private company, um, but we you know we, we don't want to be the Betamax of the moon, so uh, we we are putting our standard out there, um, but we really want to you know um, have a dialogue and get get feedback, and 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 I'd I'd rather you know ultimately be a, a small part of a huge. Uh, vibrant market than having 100% of a tiny market. Right. Now, I'm going to have to get you to explain to the audience, because I'm sure most of them won't know what you were referring to, the Betamax. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> showing my age there. So yeah, uh, you know, Sony put out put out uh, in the early 80s or late 70s, maybe, uh, you know, <laughs> videotape standard, uh, which ultimately lost out to VHS. Uh, <laughs> so, so. so most people will, <laughs> won't know that that listen to the podcast but yeah I, we get the point um all right so uh, let's talk about the actual uh, i mean capabilities uh, of the rover itself some of the technology on it uh we'll get to the modular crew interface in a second but let's talk about the uh, the rest of the technology uh, uh and how autonomous it is and and, and all of, all of that Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. As, as I was saying earlier, some uh, I, I took a lot of lessons learned from my time at NASA, um, working on the Athlete rover in particular. So Athlete, uh, if you're not familiar with it, was this enormous uh, um, six-legged spider-like robot. Uh, each leg was a, a six or seven degree of freedom robotic arm, extremely capable, could do anything. Um, but it was extremely complex. Uh, you know, there had ultimately 48 degrees of freedom. Um, and, uh, and if on the other end of the spectrum the, is the kind of Apollo lunar rover, uh, which, you know, was four wheel, you know, four wheels uh, with steering kind of um, golf cart like functionality. Uh, and what I found is there's, there's essentially a curve, you know, where for um, additional complexity, you get um, more capability, but only up to a point. So um, that there's a knee in that curve where it starts to level off and adding more and more complexity doesn't get you any more capability. So Flex is really trying to hit that the optimum in, in the 
the curve there where we have more actuators, more degrees of freedom um, than the Apollo lunar rover. Um, and what, what those allow us to do is actually adapt to the terrain and change the clearance of the chassis with respect to the ground. And so we can basically raise up or lower the chassis and we can lift and lower each wheel independently. And that ultimately is what allows us to pick up a put down payloads and, and is really um, what I think is the, 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 you know, the really value added uh, capability of, of the system. And, and how much does uh, the rover uh, weigh? So the lunar version will weigh uh, 500 kilograms. Uh, the Earth version, you know, which is designed for Earth loads, uh, is uh, is a little over a thousand at, at the moment. So, but it, they have the same uh, top speed, same size, uh, same um, you know mobility performance. Um, it will just uh, because the the lunar gravity is is significantly less than Earth, uh, we can you know. Um, shave some mass on, on some of the structural components. So in terms of other capabilities on the rover, you've got uh, navigation and hazard detection uh, sensors. Uh, you've got, uh, let's see, a steerable, steerable high gain antenna, uh, solar arrays, um, robotic arm, uh, and ro uh, remote science mass, uh, payload interfaces, obviously. Uh, and the, of course, you already talked about the uh, adaptive uh, suspension, and it also has the capability, which uh, uh, is kind of cool, that uh, when uh, you can have it both automated uh, and you can have a, a, an interface so that uh, astronauts can can use it. Explain explain the astronaut usage of it. Yeah. So the the context of that really is you know our the Artemis program, which is NASA's program to send humans back to the moon. Uh, the, the key difference between Artemis and Apollo is the desire to do it in a sustainable way and to ultimately arrive at a you know continuous sustainable human presence on the moon rather than the Apollo you know which was a, a missions that lasted a few days at a time um, and you know with no no longer term plan to stay um, and so what that means for uh, you know rovers in particular is that the astronauts at least in the in the initial years will only be around for a few days at a time. And we, these systems need to, though, you know, be able to last many years on the moon, a decade or more, um, and and perform useful functions when the astronauts aren't there. And so Flex is is unique in that capability. It can do lots of robotic science, logistics, uh, etc. But when the astronauts are present, um, one of the payloads that can be attached to the rover is is the crew interface. Um, and so that's actually a removable element of the rover. So we have this. Uh, Kind of chariot style standing interface um, that uh, that we've designed though you know it certainly doesn't have to be that way it could be seats as well um, that's one of the advantages of it being modular you can try different things um, and uh, basically allows two suited astronauts to stand side by side um, and uh, you know operate from a, a joystick that's between them uh, and a touch screen as well that allow them to control the different functions of the rover now, one of the things you mentioned, which uh, I was just about to get to, is a ter terrestrial uh, version of this. So explain to me the terrestrial version and what's the market? Yeah, well, so we, uh, we sprinted to build a terrestrial prototype of the rover just uh, because that's kind of our, our work, work culture. You know, um, I, 
I, had, I spent, like I said, uh, 10 years at, at NASA at JPL working on robots. But after that, I, I spent seven years at SpaceX and uh, learned, you know, that way of operating and, uh, um, and, and the whole philosophy of, you know, design, build, test, iterate, you know, uh, very quickly, fail fast. You know, there's lots of different ways of saying that. But so we, we were um, motivated to build our terrestrial prototype extremely quickly. And it, it's a forcing function for making all kinds of decisions and setting up a supply chain and setting up infrastructure, uh, et cetera. Um, but um, I, I think what your real question is, is, um, you know, what terrestrial applications do we see for, for Flex? Um, I think there's quite a few. You know, ultimately, we're building a very capable off-road mobility platform uh, and logistics platform. And so we can apply that to many problems. You know, um, one, one area we're particularly excited about is using uh, Flex as kind of a, a construction assistance assistant. Uh, so you imagine these large-scale solar farm, um, you know, construction projects, often in areas that don't have roads, um, but they have to move a lot of equipment out uh, to, you know, to far, far flung reaches of the construction site. Uh, so we're excited about, you know, applying Plex to that problem. Um, probably one of the more exciting ones is, uh, uh, you know, the, the um, Air Force recently funded SpaceX to do point-to-point uh, -point rocket delivery uh, through their Regal program. Um, and so that's the, you know, the idea of basically putting down 100 tons of cargo anywhere in the world inside of 45 minutes. And so the, the notional use case of that is, uh, you know, a disaster scenario where you have a tsunami, let's say in the South Pacific, and you need to, to get humanitarian goods uh, to, uh, to folks in an area that has maybe a destroyed airport or, or, or roads. And so we, we could uh, serve a function there, similar to the one we, you know, plan to serve on the moon, which is unloading large cargo in a hostile, unprepared environment. And what's the power source? So for the lunar version, you know, it needs to last 10 years. Uh, so we have a combination of batteries and solar panels. Um, a lot of people don't know that the, the Apollo lunar rover actually didn't even have rechargeable batteries because um, it only had to last for three days. Um, <laughs> so, uh, you know, one of what's interesting. Well, can, can, we, can we boost it when we get back? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. Uh, well, you know what's what's really challenging about the moon is is the lunar night, uh, and you know you, you, depending on on where you are on the moon, you can basically have you know fourteen continuous twenty four hour periods of darkness, uh, and then fourteen twenty four hour periods of continuous um, sunshine. Uh, so things can um, get very very hot and very very cold. Um, this problem is a little easier to deal with at the south pole of the moon, uh, which is one of the reasons that a lot of the activity is concentrated there. Uh, the lunar nights there are, you know, on order 100 hours or so. Uh, but that's that's still a long time when you're sitting in complete darkness, um, you know, in the in the freezing cold. So uh, a lot of our energy, the, the, the biggest demand on our energy system is really surviving that lunar night. It's not the actual operational use of the rover. And what about on Earth? What's the power source? Uh, it would, it would uh, be battery powered as well. So um, we, we would probably, uh, because we have, you know, recharging options here on Earth, we'll, we'll, we'd probably ditch the solar panels, but, uh, but uh, we keep the batteries. Yeah. 
So how far along are you in uh, development? And uh, I know you've done at least one field uh, test. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so we, we, we took our flex prototype out to the Dumont Dunes uh, off-highway vehicle area in California here, which is a gorgeous place uh, uh, right outside of Death Valley National Park. Um, and um, it's somewhere that I had uh, used as an, uh, as an analog site with our, in my NASA years. Um, but uh, it's got a lot of varied terrain in addition to the, the dunes. Um, and we uh, use that field test to you know, demonstrate a lot of the core functionality of the system. So we, we, had, uh, we were fortunate to have uh, uh, Chris Hadfield on our board of advisors. So Chris joined us out there in the desert. Um, and I'm sure your Canadian listeners are very familiar with, uh, with Chris. Um, but he's, uh, you know, uh, absolute um, uh, asset for us. You know, he, he was actually the, the chief of uh, robotics in the astronaut office when in his time as an astronaut. So he, he understands, um, you know, the problems we uh, are dealing with and, and um, has very valuable feedback um, about our system. Um, we also did a lot of robotic tasks like setting up uh, infrastructure. We set up uh, um, a mock vertical solar array, which is one of the key pieces of infrastructure that you need at the Lunar South Pole uh, to gather lots of power to enable all kinds of activities. Um, we deployed a long cable, which again is another um, key task you would need to do in, in order to set up an outpost. So that's for you know power distribution. Um, we also uh, moved one of our large cargo containers, so robotic logistics. Uh, and we had a really cool partnership with JPL um, where we took one of their rovers, um, Axel, uh, which is a, a, a rover that is able to rappel down. It's a two-wheeled, uh, um, almost like a yo-yo. Uh, it's a yo-yo a with a, a boom, a tail. Um, and um, it can rappel itself down really, really steep terrain, uh, vertical terrain. And so we actually uh, used our rover to deposit it on the edge of a cliff that it then proceeded to repel down. Um, and we called that the marsupial demonstration. So having, you know, a small rover attached mm -hmm. to the underbelly of, of the big one. And all right, so in terms of challenges, obviously you have different challenges for terrestrial development as opposed to the moon, but what are some of the challenges that you're facing in, in developing the rover for the moon? Yeah, the, the lunar environment is, is, uh, is really nasty. Um, I have personally worked on um, you know, Mars rovers before. Um, my, uh, some of my colleagues have been intimately involved in the Mars robotics program as well. Um, but the, the moon is a different beast in that uh, one, the, the dust is, is uh, harsh. Um, the, the interesting thing about lunar dust is you know, it's formed by impact. So things hit the moon and explode the basalt into really you know, sharp shards. But because there's no weather on the moon, there's no wind to blow those particles around, there's no water, uh, they, they remain sharp forever. <laughs> and uh, you know, as a, you know, I'm, I'm personally a mechanisms engineer um, throughout my career and, and uh, it's, it's, uh, it's a nightmare to, to deal with that kind of dust. Um, and then also, yeah, the, the temperature is another uh, difficult problem. You, you, you can have on the, 
you know, on the same vehicle, depending whether or not it's, you know, one side's facing the sun and the, the other side's facing space, you can have hundreds of degrees uh, temperature gradient across the same vehicle at the same time. And that's, that's really tough to deal with. And because of some of the reporting uh, I've done uh, in Canada, um, through rover developments that are ongoing here, one of the things I've learned is that developing rover wheels is really, really hard. Uh, we're talking about the harsh environment. So um, uh, how are you uh, building them to deal with the, the harsh lunar environment? Yeah, you, you know, you can make your life a lot easier uh, if you are willing to live with a rigid wheel, um, which is essentially what the the Mars rovers have done. They're they're you know they're um, basically machined out of billet aluminum. Um, but the problem with that is, uh, if you're in soft soil, um, it, you, you know you you basically have to sink into it until there's enough soil underneath the the tire to support the rover and. Um, the other thing is, if you want to go faster than crawling speed, which is, uh, you know, what the M Mars rovers go on order 10 centimeters a second, uh, and, and you want to approach the speeds that the Apollo lunar rover did, which was, uh, you know, around 15 kilometers an hour was its top speed, uh, then you have to really worry about impact uh, with, with rocks. And so to, to survive that, you really want a flexible tire. And, and that's... Uh, making a, a flexible system for the moon is is the challenge um, because all the traditional things you would want to use like rubber uh, you know you you can't use because of the temperature extremes um, and, and other reasons but uh, yeah so we we're uh, we're working on that's one of the things we're partnered with Venturi on is is flexible tires uh, for the moon um, I when I was at, at JPL I worked uh, with with Michelin on a similar uh, problem um, for uh, w when we were working on athlete to, to try to make flexible tires and you know I learned a lot of lessons there um, and uh, you know it's it's a tough problem and, and that's one of the reasons we're working on it now. <laughs> <laughs> so what's what's the the plan for the next year? Yeah so I uh, w we're we're focused on advancing the lunar design and getting it to the moon as soon as possible. Um, I, I would love to have a flex operating on the moon in advance of the first astronauts arriving. Um, NASA's current plan with the, their uh, lunar terrain vehicle program um, is actually to have that, that, that vehicle arrive after the first human mission. So that's um, the first human mission is Artemis three. Uh, the next one where the astronauts go to the surface is Artemis 5. Uh, they're targeting having this lunar terrain vehicle um, by Artemis 5. But I actually think, uh, you know, we, we can go faster than that. And that's what we're trying to do. And we're trying to raise, um, you know, the capital to, to get to the moon um, even before the first astronauts get there. And so that would be on Eclipse mission or, or is that on uh, a SpaceX? There's uh there's a couple of options um yeah so we're you know we're still um we haven't uh, uh locked anything in at this point but um um you know that's we have options <laughs> it's nice <laughs> so that's the plan though is to try and get it there ahead of the astronauts so that at least you get some testing under your belt on on the moon I, I take it 
Yeah, I, I would. Well, and we could also, you know, in principle, take paying customers on that first mission as well. We have, you know, this really large payload capacity, um, and and so, you know, our our model here is really to aggregate, you know, multiple payloads and uh, for for paying customers. And our our value proposition to them is: look, we'll take care of the mobility, the communications, uh, the power, and we'll we'll deliver you to you know, your intended final location. Uh, and so, you know, it's, uh, that's, that's, uh, those are conversations we're, ha we're having now. And, you know, we're, we'd, uh, like I said, uh, uh, love to do that in advance of the first astronauts, because, you know, that, that affords the opportunity to one, put, put customers uh, to wherever they want to be, but also, we can do ancillary services, uh, like, uh, you know, we could go collect samples and cache them, uh, in advance of the astronauts coming. So, you know, enhancing their science return so we could go collect a bunch of samples and set them down at their feet, uh, you know, as soon as they step off that lander and then they, they pick the ones they like and take them home. Um, so, uh, and, then, and then other things, of course, you know, we could provide mobility to them as well. Um, so I, I, I'm really excited about this, you know, um, essentially going as, as fast as humanly possible and, uh, and seeing what happens. All right. So now we're going to circle back and we're going to talk about uh, just for a second, your experiences in the high Arctic, because I'm quite curious, um, the Houghton Mars project, the HMP project, uh, the research station was first, first field official field season of the HMP research station was in 2000. Uh, when things started to get, uh, infrastructure started to get put into place, uh, and the project is still ongoing. Uh, I can't remember, I don't know when was the last time they actually went up to the Arctic because of the pandemic. So it could have been three years ago or something like that. Uh, but for several years, there was a lot of participants that went up, including yourself, 2001, 2002. And, and to explain to the audience, um, uh, you know, this Houghton Crater is on Devon Island. And I mean, you know, we're talking a, a thousand miles north of the Arctic Circle here. So it's way up there. There's no vegetation. It's in a, a, a polar desert. Uh, in the summertime, it's not warm, um, but it you really get that sense. I, I'm trying to convey that, you know, it looks like the moon or it looks like Mars, right? And you have the dust everywhere, right? So, you know, you were young in your career then. H how did that experience uh, affect you and, 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 and help you with your career? Uh, I mean, it, it, was, it was the uh, defining experience in terms of, uh, you know, starting my career. So I was a student at Purdue University at the time. And uh, I, I, I happened to be the, the president of the students for the exploration and development of space uh, at, at the time. And I actually invited Pascal Lee, who was the, you know, who, who started the HMP project uh, to give a talk on, uh, um, you know, Mars analogs and, um, and uh, HMP in particular. And so uh, it was through that experience, got to know Pascal, and you know, I proposed this idea of of bringing a rover up there. At the time, I knew nothing <laughs> about rovers, but uh, figured it out, and uh, um, he, uh, you know, was graciously sponsored sponsored me to go up there that first summer, um, and then I was invited back for a second one as well, um, and uh, and yeah, really, it 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 was ultimately really leads up to today that was my start in rovers and i i've been doing it for 20 years and i will add that logistically 
it's almost as difficult as going to the moon and almost takes as <laughs> almost as long <laughs> to get to the that part of the high arctic uh if you're coming from uh the us or, or from canada because um it's not as a route that's very serviced very much uh you you have to get up to resolute on in to, to start with uh, after you've gone through one of the either a Callaway or Yellowknife, and then from Resolute, it's Twin Otters. And uh, when they first open up camp, uh, the pilot's sort of looking at what's considered the runway and saying, hmm, I, I think we can land there. Let's give it a try. <laughs> yeah, it's, ama it's amazing. Place. It's, uh, it's the coldest place I've ever been, too. I, and I, I, one of my first jobs at JPL was to go to Antarctica for four months. And it was still not as cold as my time on Devon Island in the summer. You know, it was because it's, it's so it's so drizzly and miserable uh, for a lot of the days. But uh, it's it's such an extraordinary landscape. Uh, it's, it's at least there was twenty. Of, at least there was twenty four hours sunshine. <laughs> yeah, but it's, it's the I, I often tell people you know it's the size of West Virginia. Imagine being on an island you know the size of a state, and you know you're the only handful of people there, uh, and there's nothing for hundreds of miles except polar bears perhaps definitely polar bears there have been <laughs> polar bear sightings all right um did i miss anything any thoughts on closing thoughts uh no i really i really appreciate this this opportunity um you know i think um you know given your your podcast is on the space economy i think what's really exciting uh is you know that I think we're on the precipice of a, an actual off-Earth economy, you know, not and not beyond Leo, right? To to actually have a vibrant um, economy functioning on on the lunar surface and then eventually Mars, um, and uh, you know that's that that is really the inspiration for behind what we're doing here at Astrolab with with Flex is is uh, you know to help bring uh, that future forward as as quickly as possible. Okay. Well, Jared, thank you for being on, on the podcast. Uh, we'll definitely be keeping uh, track of, of your progress. And, and as you get going, uh, we'll, we'll get you uh, back on the show at some point when you've got some news. Yeah, I'd love to come back. Thank you for having me. Well, that's a wrap on this episode. As always, your feedback is very much appreciated. You can send us a comment or a guest recommendation to podcast at spaceq.ca. You can also follow the podcast on Twitter at The Economy Space. And you can also support the podcast by writing a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to us. Until next time. <laughs>